turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas witness the conversion of their jailer and his whole house, and the Philippian rulers get some embarrassing news. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 16 verse 29. Once again, that's Acts chapter 16, verse 29. And this response blows the jailer away. He's not expecting anybody to be there. Verse 29, then he called for a light and he sprang in. The area is completely dark and all he'd see is the silhouette of those open doors. And so he springs in, it says, he runs in, rushes in to the jail and he came trembling And he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here was a man who knew he deserved death. He knew he was wrong. He knew he had done wrong. And yet he still lived. I wonder if he had heard the songs. Maybe now in the distance, the little echo of the songs in the middle of the night. Or maybe Paul and Silas had tried to share with them as they were being shackled. I don't know, but whatever the reason... This guy knew he was lost and he needed to be found. And so they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. What must I do to be saved? That's a great question. And and they answer it very clearly, believe, or it's in the imperative in the Greek, which means you must believe. It is necessary for you to believe. There is no other way. You must place your trust upon. You must place your reliance upon Jesus Christ. That is the only way to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul isn't simply saying that he needs to believe Jesus exists. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we must place our trust in all Jesus did, his life, his death, and his resurrection for our sins. But notice, that's the only thing he says. That is how simple salvation is. What must I do to be saved? Man, you gotta believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You gotta believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times we, when we go out and we share the gospel with folks, sometimes you may not be able to go right to that point because the people that you're talking to aren't necessarily in a position where they're trembling and on their face, right? So sometimes we have to talk about our lost condition first. That's where the issue of repentance comes up. The idea of turning to the Lord, you have to turn away from something else. The idea of changing your mind about your sin. So that was not necessary because this dude already knew. 
I remember there were times when I would talk to people and they would just be ripe and ready. They knew they were lost. They knew they're lost, but they needed a savior. And at that point, all you got to do is just introduce them to Jesus. Here's the solution. Sometimes though, for people who don't know that they're not there yet, you kind of have to talk about sin a little bit first, our lost condition. But either way, there's only one way somebody gets saved. And it's by putting their trust in Jesus Christ. Don't ever add to the gospel. It's not about putting your trust in Jesus Christ and joining Calvary Chapel or First Presbyterian or Second Baptist or Third Methodist. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not Jesus and baptism. It's not Jesus and communion. It's not Jesus and, and a bunch of good works. It's not Jesus and circumcision. It's not Jesus and anything. It's Jesus and Jesus only. That's what all my hope is in. My hope is not in my own righteousness. My hope is not in somebody else's righteousness. My hope's not in my church's righteousness. Although I'm glad to be a part of it. My hope is in the righteousness of Christ. He says, and you'll be saved. You'll be rescued. End your house. Now, that could be confusing at first because they, oh, so if this guy gets saved, his whole family's saved then. No, no, no. Verse 32. And so they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. So Paul isn't saying that this man's faith will save him as well. He's saying that salvation by faith works for everyone, not just him. If you believe this, you'll be saved. If your family believes it, they'll be saved too. Here was this man about to abandon his family by using his sword to kill himself. And Paul wants him to use a different sword to be the leader of his house. You go get saved. You go give your life to Christ. You be the leader of your house. If the family was saved by the jailer's faith, then there'd be no need to preach the message to them in verse 32, right? They'd already be good. So Paul and Silas, they share the word of God with them and all those that were in their house. In verse 33, look at this. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes and he was baptized, he and all his, straightway on the spot. And when they had brought them into this house, he set food before them, meat, and he rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. You know what? This is what it means to be born again. He was a different person, wasn't he? Here's the dude who has no qualms about taking these guys. They're not violent criminals. They didn't do anything to him. They didn't harm anybody in the city. And they're beaten and bruised already because they had been dragged by force with resistance, the scriptures say, to the magistrates. And then they had been beaten with rods by the magistrates and then placed in these stocks where they're just all stretched out and just in all this pain. And now what's he doing? took them the same hour of that night. He didn't, he didn't say, man, you know, I'm tired. I'll, can I hook you guys up in the morning? Right then and there, he takes them and he washes their stripes. I'm a big baby. So oftentimes if I have to go to the hospital or something like that, which is very rare, but if I have to have something done, you know, I'm a big baby and Bev has to take care of me. And she takes care of me and I always whine about stuff. She's like, you gotta, you gotta do this. And I'm like, I don't wanna do that. You know, so she's like, all right, you know, so walk me through it. And I'm worse than the two-year-old. And uh, can you imagine being beaten with those rods? How many times? The time and the effort, the gentleness that would be required to wash it out so they wouldn't get infected, to give them some relief. Talk about a complete turnaround. He is a different person. He is born again. And so after he washed their stripes, it says he was baptized, most likely in whatever he was bathing, Paul and Silas, it says on the spot, he and all his immediately, him and his whole family, they get baptized right there on the spot. No, no waste in time. They just want to get baptized right away. 
And that's again, the question of what is required for baptism? Do you have to go through a course? Do you have to go through, there are certain churches, they won't baptize you until you've gone through their membership course or through a foundations course. And, and that's why you got to do things that way. Really? And this guy had none of that. None of that. Same thing as the Ethiopian eunuch. What prevents me from being baptized? Here's water. And he says, well, you, want, you believe in Christ? He's like, yeah, there's water. Let's do it. That's it. That's it. I've had people ask me, I said, will you baptize children? I say, well, if they've given their life to Jesus Christ and they can articulate their faith, I'll do it. I'll do it. I've seen some of the most precious times is when you take an eight or a nine-year-old. And I, I, whenever I do a baptism, I give them an opportunity to share who Jesus is to them. So that's a warning for any of you getting baptized. <clears throat> but uh, I say, share who Jesus is to you. And to have these little kids say, I love Jesus with all my heart. And I believe he died for my sins. And I just want to live for him. Is there anything to prevent that kid from getting baptized? No way. No way. I don't ever want to discourage. I want to be like, I'm right there with you. Let's go out into that water and let's do that, bro. Let's do that. Let's get this done. And let everybody out here know that you want to follow Jesus. There's no time too soon for that. If they can understand the gospel and they've received the gospel and they want to share their faith publicly, there's no reason to stop that. There's no reason to stop that for a brand new believer. If they understand what they've done, they've given their life to Christ and they want to declare that publicly, then down under the water they can go. They baptized him right there. And when he brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. Man, he doesn't sound like a happy guy beforehand, ready to kill himself. Now, the reason they would do that is because if you were a jailer or a Roman soldier that was watching a prisoner and that prisoner escaped under your watch, you suffer whatever penalty they had, they were going to get. And so he has to be thinking, there's got to be somebody here worthy of death. I might as well just do it now rather than go through the process of being whipped and beaten and go through all that mess. I'll just kill myself now. And yet for someone to come to a place of suicide, I can't imagine there was much rejoicing in that home. I can't imagine there was much to be living for if he was ready to end it right there, to leave behind a family to have to deal with the consequences. And yet here we find them rejoicing and all the families rejoicing, believing in God. When most people say that we need to be more like the early church is because they see events like this and they say, I want to see that happen in my life. I want to see this stuff happen in my life. I mean, don't we want to have these kind of stories here at Calvary Chapel, Orlando? I want to, I want to see this stuff. The problem is, though, is that when somebody sees these things and they get all excited and they say, okay, so, so how do they do things in the book of Acts? And so we get caught up in methodology. We attempt to copy the form, but not the heart behind it. And so we begin to try to say, well, what did they do here? We had a jail ministry. So we should all be doing jail ministry, which is great if we'd have jail ministry. We have a jail ministry. We minister to the young ladies and the young men in the detention centers. But if we all do that, then we're not doing the full ministry. Oh, we should all just, you know, have all things common. That, that's how we should have church. Or it should be a healing ministry or whatever people want to call it. They get stuck up and caught up in the methodology. They attempt to copy the form, but not the heart behind it. Because here's the heart behind it. It's people like Paul and Peter. They were willing to go through whatever God threw at them in order to see lost people saved. Do you hear that? Paul and Peter were willing. This is the heart of it. Paul and Peter were willing to go through whatever God threw at them in order to see lost people saved. Their very lives were an offering. Their very lives were a tool God could use however he wanted. And man, that's what I want to be. Remember Abraham and Isaac, they were traveling up to the Mount Moriah and to worship the Lord, right? And Isaac looked at his dad and he said, I see the wood 
We got fire, but where's the offering, Dad? And so often I wonder, I think church today has a lot of wood and a lot of fire. There's not a whole lot of things dying. The very nature of an offering means something dies there. Something is laid down on that altar to die, to perish, to say, I'm not going to live for self anymore. It's not going to be about me anymore. That's what I want to be. That's what I want our church to be. And therefore, every decision that we make here is going to revolve around two things, two very important things. How do we better disciple the people who are already here? And how do we better reach out to those who aren't? It's that, it's that simple. Every decision that's made around here is gonna be governed around how do we better disciple the people who are here? How do we better reach out to those who aren't? Because as I said, the very first Sunday I was here, one thing is necessary, right? One thing is needful. One thing I desired of the Lord. This one thing I do, what? Might know him. And the way that we get people to know him is we disciple them while they're here and then we bring them in so they can get to know him, right? That's what it's all about. Every single decision that is made around here. Are we gonna do this ministry or are we gonna do this ministry? I don't know. Is it gonna help us disciple people better? Is it gonna reach the lost and bring them in? Then let's do it. If not, we're not gonna waste our time on it. Some churches do a really good job of evangelism, reaching out to the lost. Some churches are entirely inward focused, but I believe we have a mandate from God to do both. Would you turn to the gospels with me to Matthew chapter 28? We're also gonna go to Mark chapter 16. I I thought this was fascinating. Verse 16 in Matthew 28. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So he's, he went away into Galilee in a mountain where Jesus appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now I want you to understand the context of where they are at this point. And Jesus came and spoke unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go you and teach or literally make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So Matthew 28 here, verses 19 through 20, it's in Galilee on a mountain, okay? And it focuses on our mandate to make disciples, right? He says, go therefore and do what? Make disciples. And how do we do that? We baptize them. We teach them the principles of Christ, right? That's what we're doing today, right? We're teaching. We're learning about what Jesus taught us to observe all the things that he has commanded us. But look over to Mark 16. We tend to think of these two chapters as the same event. In Mark 16, verse 15, well, actually, let's go up to verse 14. This is after he rose from the dead. It says, he appeared unto the 11 as they sat at meat. They're sitting down at a table to eat. And he upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe is condemned. So here we see an entirely different mandate. This one has a focus on the evangelistic aspect. Do you see the difference? These are two different events. We tend to lump them together because they both are the last few verses at the end of the gospels. And we figure, oh, it's the same thing. It's our mandate to go out and preach the gospel. But we have two mandates. We have a mandate to reach the lost, to bring them in, to bring them to faith, to preach to every creature. That's every single person who's out there. And then we have a mandate to make disciples of those who receive Christ, to bring them in and to teach them whatsoever things he has commanded us. And so everything we do here is going to focus on how do we accomplish being obedient to those two mandates? 
And so we ask these same two questions. Are we doing that? Are we accomplishing that? God, how can we better disciple those who are here and to reach those who aren't? How do we do this better? How do we reach more people? How do we better disciple the folks who are here? And that's what as leaders we're trying to do right now as we seek the Lord and say, Lord, what is best for both our family and those who are gonna be part of our family someday, but aren't yet? God, here's my life. I choose to die to all that, what I like and what I know I want because I wanna see your kingdom expand. I wanna see hell gates come down no matter what it might cost me. That was the attitude that Paul and Silas had here, willing to go to jail to see this jailer come to Christ. Verse 35, and when it was day, so the night goes by, they have a a nice 2 a.m. snack and I don't know if they get some sleep or not, if they just stay up all night rejoicing, but 35, it says, when it was daytime, the magistrate sent the sergeants saying, let these men go. The sergeants would be the lictors. These would be the men who beat Paul and Silas. So these are usually kind of tough guys. And so they come down, they sent them down to the jail saying, let these men go. Early commentators in church history stated that they had a change of heart because of the earthquake. And they thought we did something wrong here. It wasn't really a fair trial. They didn't even get a chance to defend themselves. They said, we'll just let them go. We'll let them go quietly and you know, not make a big deal about it. So verse 36, the keeper of the prison came to Paul and he said, good news, man, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart, go in peace. You can go and everything's good. But Paul's like, uh, not quite. <laughs> he said unto them, they have beaten us openly and uncondemned. The word they're openly means public. They did it publicly in front of everybody without a proper trial, uncondemned. There was no trial. Being Romans, and they have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privately, quietly? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. It had been mob justice. Even slaves in the Roman Empire were allowed to make a defense for themselves. So these magistrates had not done their job. The Lex Potia in 248 BC, Roman law, made it illegal to inflict blows upon a Roman citizen. Cicero said this, to fetter a Roman citizen was a crime, to scourge him, a scandal. In fact, a Roman colony could lose its freedom if it was found to have mistreated Roman citizens in this way. And Paul is thinking, ah, not so easy, not so fast. And so, Paul exercises his rights as a Roman citizen to the full extent here. He does it actually throughout the entire book of Acts. Now, sometimes that went well. Sometimes it went for his good, like here. Sometimes, not so much. And as Christians who are also U.S. citizens, we do have rights. One of the greatest rights we have is to vote. I vote all the time because I still have a voice. Someday soon, we might not. So I do vote even though I'm discouraged. And even though there are times when there are men on the ballot, I don't want to vote for any of them. And I come in there and I say that. I'll write down there underneath. I say, I don't want any of these turkeys in there. I do. Your name might end up on a ballot somewhere. But I also make sure if there are godly people, if there are individuals who stand up for what is right and what is wrong, who have good moral values that I will, Pencil them in and say, I want to see them there because I still have that right. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. Just like Paul. There's nothing wrong with claiming those rights, but just realize, and this is the important part, all these rights that we have as U.S. citizens aren't promised by God. And the government isn't near as faithful in upholding them. God is faithful to keep his promises. Our government, not so much. Any government, not so much. 
See, our primary citizenship is in heaven, and that king never fails. He never fails. Well, this was not good. Verse 38, And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they had heard that they were Romans. And so they came and they besought them, means to request, to earnestly plead with or beg. They begged them, saying, and they brought them out. They brought them out of the prison. They desired them to depart out of the city. They kept on asking them is what that means. They kept asking, can you guys just please leave? We don't, we, we, you know, we, we're sorry what we did. You know, it was wrong. Can you just go though? Because the mob hates you and let's just keep the peace. And we don't want us to get out because this just is all bad. And so verse 40, they went out of the prison and they entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and they departed. So interesting here, Luke stays behind in Philippi because here we see him use that they again. So Luke stays behind with the church in Philippi, but Paul and Silas go ahead and leave and others of his team, the rest of his team seems to go too because we'll see some of them stay behind in Thessalonica when Paul has to leave there as well. But I love when they get out of prison, they didn't just leave. They came to the brothers and they comforted them. The word there means to encourage I imagine that their treatment by the mob would have been rough for all of these young Christians to see and to think, is that what waits me? Some of them, it would. For some of them, it would. But for some, not. And the encouragement is, guys, hang in there. God's gonna take care of you, but be willing to have the same heart that we had to pay the same price that others might be saved. (laughs) Jesus never promised life would be fair. I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. So anytime my kids say, that's not fair. I say, well, then you're okay because God promised life would be opposite of that. He didn't say it would be fair. He promised he would be fair. But he didn't promise life would be fair. He didn't promise that people would even listen to reason. (laughs) But if you turn over to 1 Peter 3 with me one more time, we read it in our scripture reading, but I'd like to read a few of these verses as we close. 1 Peter 3 and... I'm going to start in verse 13. It says, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Well, most people not. If you're doing things well, you know, you're a hard worker, you're honest, you're kind, you're doing things the right way, most people will leave you alone, even though you're a Christian. They're not going to get all up in your face and be all mean and nasty to you and keep you from promotions. Most people will be reasonable. and They'll appreciate the fact that you're a hard worker and you have good qualities and you're trustworthy. But there are those who won't. But, verse 14, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, then happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but instead, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer, a defense to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they are speaking evil of you, unjustly so, as of evildoers, that they might be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation, your good lifestyle in Christ. I imagine that's what happened to this jailer. They keep him fast in the stocks and he's bringing them in. What'd they do? Well, they were talking about God, talking about this Jesus and that Jesus died for us. We need to put our faith in Christ. I'm sure, you know, in his mind, he's vilifying them and whatnot, stirring up riots and all this mess. And when in reality, they had done nothing wrong. He fastens them in the stocks but then through their godly conduct, he is broken eventually. He is ashamed by their good lives and he's won. 
for it is better if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Sometimes as Christians, I wonder, we say I'm being persecuted for Jesus. No, you're being persecuted because you're being nasty. Let's be walking in a way that we're doing well. And if people persecute us, well, someday when Jesus returns, all that will be made right. But until then, I want to live in alignment with the Lord no matter what comes my way. Amen? Sanctify the Lord in your heart. Live with a clear conscience and always be ready to share why you have hope because you never know when your tormentor might be the very one Jesus saves because of your life. Lord, we were your tormentor. It was our sin that nailed you to that cross. And yet you said, for the joy that was set before you, you endured it and you despised all that shame. It was worth it to you. It was a cause of joy in the sense that you know what you were winning. You knew what you were purchasing. You knew what it was accomplishing, Lord. And Lord, your servants, Paul and Silas, they did the same exact thing. They knew that you were accomplishing something through their difficulties in the lives of others. So Lord, here we are. Whatever it is, whether it's just a discomfort or maybe just something we don't like or even it goes so far as persecution or or pain, Lord, in our lives, we offer our lives up to you and say, whatever, Lord, you want to do with us, that we might reach a lost and dying world for you. Whatever you want to do in our life, Lord, as individuals, that we might be able to share the gospel with somebody and see them one to you. Lord, would you do it? Take us, Lord. We place ourselves on the altar. Have your way. In Jesus' name. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Light is strong on me,